welcome back to the Vine Church podcast called The Vine Conversations. And today I am really pleased to welcome my new friend, Dr. Luis Marcos. And Dr. Marcos is a professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University, where he holds the Robert H. Ray Chair in Humanities. He teaches courses on British Romantic and Victorian poetry and prose, the classics, C.S. Lewis, and J.R.R. Tolkien. So, Dr. Marcos, thank you so much for joining us for a conversation. Great to be on. Yeah. The warm state of Texas, right? Yes. <laughs> We're warming up next week to a balmy 50 degrees. And so oh boy. Um, that's that's rare for us. So we're looking forward <laughs> to it. So um yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, Dr. Marcos, and yeah, just you who you are, anything you want to share just to help us get to know you or your family and maybe your background, and then would love to hear how you came to faith. Great. Well, um I am uh even though I'm in Texas now, I'm actually a cold Yankee. I grew up in uh, New Jersey, went to Colgate in upstate New York, went to University of Michigan. Uh, but the second half of my life has been down in Houston, Texas. I've taught at HBU, Houston Baptist University, for 31 years. I love it here. This is great. Uh, all four of my grandparents uh, were born in Greece and immigrated to America during the Depression. So wow. I'm full-blooded Greek. I grew up Greek Orthodox. I came to know Christ in the Orthodox Church. I was about 13, 14. Uh, but then in my case, the Lord sort of moved me into the evangelical world. Uh, but I've been fascinated, Zach, to see that a lot of my strongest believing Christians these days are becoming Orthodox or Catholic. So it's kind of yeah. interesting how things are moving around. But uh, I've always loved C.S. Lewis. And one of the things that C.S. Lewis has helped teach me and so many other people, probably many of your listeners, is that I, as a believing Baptist, have much more in common with a believing Methodist, a believing Presbyterian, a believing Catholic, a believing Orthodox than I do with someone on my denomination that's just sort of social gospel and that's it. Yeah. And we're starting to find out what Lewis called mere Christianity. The center of the faith is our belief in the Trinity, the incarnation, the atonement, the, the resurrection, the authority of Scripture. These are the things that we share in common and they're very, very important. And again, it was people like C.S. Lewis, who who was Anglican, but he still reached out and kept his focus on the essential Christian beliefs. And Lewis helped us to dialogue. Uh, there's someone else who helped us, Zach, and it's kind of a shame, but it took about, uh, how many now, 10 million babies dead for yeah. Catholics and evangelicals to finally work side by side uh, right. to reach out to our culture and, and change the heart of our nation and bring Christ. And so even though I, I'm Baptist, uh, and, you know, believer in baptism and all that stuff. Personally, my real goal is to reach out to what we have in common. Now, the other thing, Zach, that, that's also a common thing is at, at HBU Houston Baptist, one of our pillars is bring Athens and Jerusalem together. And that mm -hmm. means bring together our Greco-Roman and our Judeo-Christian legacy. And that's one of the most important things I do in, in all my teaching, speaking, writing, all of that is trying to sow that we can actually learn from the pagan writings. Now, luckily, we have the Bible as our touchstone that we can measure everything. Yeah. But, you know, as a professor, you know, I'm looking for not just God's special revelation that comes from the Bible, from Christ, but also his general revelation that yeah. comes to us from the ancient world, from creation, from conscience, and trying to, again, connect the dots, build those bridges, and see God's greater purpose. Yeah. And so that's kind of, those are some of my passions. Oh man, that's great. That's great. 
And how did you, can you just give us a little more insight into how you came from the faith of your childhood to what you believe now? What was that process like? And what, what, well, some, what were the key if, moments that, that helped you yeah. turn that corner? I mean, if, if anything, I'm a product of University Christian Fellowship. That's one of those parachurch groups, Campus yep. Crusades, yep. another one, yep. Navigators is another one. And when I went to Colgate, sec- very secular school, but I joined that. And okay, I, I did come to know Christ in the Orthodox Church, mm-hmm. but the idea of fellowship, of praying together, wasn't as strong there. And it was when I joined University and I very quickly learned how to lead Bible studies, and I've been leading Bible studies ever since. Uh, uh, group worship, prayer together, you know, praying out loud, all of that sort of stuff. And then in my case, you know, I slowly moved towards a more evangelical view of, of the Lord's Supper. And I also uh, had a believer's baptism. I, I was infant baptized like any Orthodox or Catholic. Right. Um, but, you know, God really laid it on my heart during my uh, uh, years at Colgate. Uh, and it's pretty amazing. I, let's see if I can say this quickly. Uh, what happened God gave me a very specific answer, Zach, because I was praying about two things. I felt like God was moving me into the evangelical world. But when you're Greek, see, being Greek is like being Jewish. Your ethnicity and your religion are one and the same. There's no distinction. And that's kind of a neat thing. It gave me a lot of sense of myself growing up. But it also, you know, makes it difficult if you're going to change. So that was the number one prayer. The second prayer, though, was I needed more um, fellowship. I was very strong when I was in school, but I didn't have that kind of fellowship uh, back home that was talking about Christ and learning the Bible. And I kept praying. And then the spring of 1985, when I was a junior, I got to study in England, kind of a common thing at these liberal arts schools. Yeah. Uh, and I got to attend uh, All Souls Church. Zach, you ever heard yeah. of uh, oh, yeah. John Stott? Yes, After sir. John Stott preached. He was the rector emeritus. Uh, and I was praying and praying. I joined an international Bible study because I was now an international person from America. And we met. And one time after church, um, we met at a Wendy's and we were all sitting down eating and we were all, you know, whatever, 20s. And we saw this older man named John from the uh, church. He was maybe 80. And we said, John, come sit with us. And he sat down with us and he said, hello. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you're an American, aren't you? And I said, yeah, look, I just got a letter from America. And he just puts it down. And he's, oh, okay. That's kind of a strange <laughs> thing, but I guess I'll open it up. And I opened it up and it was from a couple who had gone. They were uh, Irish and, and, and English and they'd gone to Old Souls for a long time. And the husband had been moved to America. He was in oil. And they were writing to their friend, George, actually, it was George, George Stubbs. They wrote to him and said, after a long time, we finally have found a Christ-centered, Bible-believing church. We're so excited. The name of the church is the Mountainside Gospel Chapel. And when I read that, the letter just sort of dropped from my hand because Mountainside, New Jersey, is a town of maybe two miles, and it's where I'm from. Wow. So it's like, you got to be kidding me. What is this like a letter to me? And I, yeah. I knew exactly where that church was, but I didn't know it was a church because when you grow up Greek Orthodox, a Baptist church looks like an office building. It doesn't yes. look like a sacred <laughs> space at all. So that was just, so that was like an answer to two squares. And so boom, I went there. But again, that's helped me though, to learn, you know, to, to take the treasures from all the different denominations, what what are we learning? What what have they contributed? Look, I teach a classical. I work for classical Christian schools all the time. Speaking, most of them tend to be fairly reformed, coming out of a Presbyterian background. Doug sure. Wilson, yeah. one of my heroes, and and yet 
most of what they're doing, they're learning from the Middle Ages, which was Catholic. Okay, yeah. They're learning from the classical, real education that comes out of the Jesuits of all people. Right. Uh, and they're willing to learn from also Catholic converts like uh, Cardinal Newman, uh, G.K. Chesterton, people like that. And so there, there's this desire to draw on all the wisdom that God has sent to us so we can understand the fullness of our faith and we can reach out to people uh, mm. that are looking for a sense of wonder and beauty and goodness and truth. And, and, and uh, so we, we, we're not going to turn aside anything that, that comes ultimately from God. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And, and there's a way I would imagine that you coach people to, you know, keep the meat and spit out the bones. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And, and you know, and like I said, we, 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 we need to, I mean, we get the framework. We need to understand the basic Nicene Creed. Mm-hmm. And then we can learn from each other how to develop that, right? How, mm-hmm. how, to, how to personalize it and all. But mm-hmm. we, we start with those essential beliefs and then we move out. And, and again, you know, different, different denominations have different ways of reaching out to people. Yeah. You know, so some people need that, that extreme Bible teaching, which is great. And I love that. But some people also need something that's a bit more imaginative, that mm-hmm. focuses more on the aesthetic side. And so, I, you know, I want to help people go where Christ is going to feed them, not mm-hmm. where I would want to go. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, and, and you know, I, I remember reading in an apologetics book, I can't remember the name now. They said that in the old days, uh, what was the, the model was get them saved and get them to join your group. The new model is get them to join your group so they can see the authenticity of your love for Christ and then you can lead them to the Lord. Right. And the other thing he said is people are not so much looking for a preacher as they're looking for a guide, sort of like Gandalf, yeah. to guide them along the way uh, as they're trying to grow spiritually. And uh, and all of this is tied together, as you know, Zach, with the need to help people because biblical illiteracy is just growing. People, right. I mean, people often don't even know who Noah is. I mean, we're not right. talking about minor things. We're talking about the major Bible stories, and we're right. not quite sure who Moses or Noah or Abraham yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So that's also part of the work now is giving a full biblical understanding of how God is working in the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. I really appreciate how you articulate that. Um, well, Dr. Marcos, you've written a lot and, and you've studied a lot about the life of a guy named C.S. Lewis. And for some of our listeners, they probably have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, they might not know who wrote it. Um, but they've at least heard of it. And that's probably the extent of their knowledge of this guy named C.S. Lewis. Um, but his books are still in print. Yeah, all of them. And, and I, as a musician, I think about this. Um, I want to, I spent a lot of time with music in my past and music, music's kind of one of the ways God has made me, um, and it really affects how I listen to music. And I've tried to spend time with music that I would call timeless, meaning mm-hmm. meaning like it's still in print, you know, decades later. And there's a reason why it's still in print. It's still on iTunes or Spotify, you know, how we would say today. Um, because it has a richness, a profundity that spans the the trends of a certain day. I mean, it sounds, it still sounds relevant even 70, 80 years later. And I, and I felt the same way about, you know, what are the books that we read? You know, if it stood the test of time, 
that's a really good sign. Um, and we could talk about that a lot, of course. But all that to say is C.S. Lewis has stood the test of time, um, you know, a few decades, not not as much as Jonathan Edwards or yeah. or Spurgeon or whatever. But yeah, I mean, if you've you know, if you've if you're still in print 80, 90 years later, you're doing pretty good. Um, why is that the case? Do you believe it's amazing? Many things. First of all, Lewis brought together reason and imagination. Sometimes you have the people that can give you the systematic theology, all of that. They got other people that can, can you know, appeal to beauty. Lewis just combined them perfectly. Reason and imagination. And he speaks, to, he was an extremely educated man, but he speaks to us in layman terms. He speaks directly. He speaks to the heart. Look, just the best way to put it is, I love St. Augustine, right? But I read, uh, you know, the confessions and I've got to read it again because I keep forgetting, you know? Right. I mean, but Lewis, you read it once and that's it. I'll just give you one example of how Lewis yeah. just cuts to the chase, speaks to us in a way that just, oh my gosh, I never thought about it that way, but now I can never think about it any other way, right? Simple example. Everybody says, we all know as Christians, we're supposed to love the sinner, but hate the sin. Right. But a lot of people say, well, that's impossible. I can't love the sinner and hate the sin. How can I separate those? That's impossible. And Lewis says, you can. Every day you practice loving the sinner and hating the sin. You know how you practice it, Zach? You practice it to yourself, yeah. right? Because when I do something mean-spirited or something, I end up hating what I've done, but I continue to love myself. Right. In fact, the reason I hate so much that mean-spirited thing I did is because I love myself and I know I'm better than that. And that's not the kind of person I am and not the kind of person I want to be. So see, something simple like that is like, oh my gosh. Why did I never think about that? It just opens your eyes. Yeah. He speaks whenever he uses metaphors or similes. They're very direct, specific. That, like you said, they're timeless. Lewis also was able to write in every genre. There's basically three C.S. Lewis's. There is the great fiction writer, the Seven Chronicles of Novel, uh, the Seven Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote the Space Trilogy or the Ransom Trilogy, three science fiction novels. He wrote something called Till We Have Faces. Right. Even something like Screw Tape Letters and The Great Divorce are really works of fiction. It, sort of their own genre. He's also the great apologist. He wrote Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain, uh, Miracles, mm -hmm. and many other essays that are specifically defending the faith. But he was also a great English professor. And that's why he's a kind of a double role model for me as an English professor. He wrote The Preface to Paradise Lost, one of the best books written on Milton. He wrote The Allegory of Love, one of the best books on medieval allegory. He wrote The Discarded Image, which helps you to understand the medieval time and, and the medieval cosmological model. All of these things, he was able to move back and forth. And he was able to make a sort of rational, apologetical argument. But then he was also able to incarnate that argument in some of his fiction. So mm -hmm. it appeals to people wherever they are. There's a directness to it. There's a no nonsense to it. Uh, Lewis is, is not one of these narrow specialists. He's able to speak on a wide range of things and make connections, give us the aha moment, as we say. And we just don't forget it. You read it in Lewis and it just stays with you. It's yeah. so real and direct. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is like, it's the pictures that he paints along mm -hmm. with the content of what he's preaching that make you or teaching or preaching um, more teaching probably exactly, but that makes it much more rich and memorable as a pedagogical method, as a way to teach what a lesson for anybody who wants to communicate effectively. Right. That's a good point. You can show and tell at the same time. <laughs> you might say, 
And it's true. And it, it does. You know, it, you know, that's why uh, nowadays a, a big push is to try to get our students to take notes with a pen rather than typing. Because when you're doing that, it's using more of your skills. You're sort of writing it into your mind. It's a more active thing. And maybe uh, that's kind of an analogy. What you're saying there, Zach, is, is, is Lewis is appealing to all of us. And if you go back and read Narnia again carefully, you will see that he's constantly appealing not only to sight, but to sound, to hearing, to, to hearing, to smelling even, to, to touch. I mean, he, he really has a way of appealing to all of our senses, particularly in his fiction. Simply, not, not all overmannered or anything. It's still a children's novel. Uh, but only Lewis could write a children's novel with a very simple surface meaning. And yet there are layers and layers and layers of deeper meanings that yeah. you can just keep delving. And that's wonderful. I love that as well. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Well, I would imagine there's, like I said, people at our church um, have never read a C.S. Lewis book before. And what is your recommendation for someone who might not have a lot of theological education or has never studied apologetics? Um, what would be your recommendation for someone who just wants to continue in their love of Jesus uh, and their discipleship? What, what's the C.S. Lewis book you'd put in their hands first? The definite place to start, because it's so accessible and so memorable, is the screw tape letters. And mm. what that is, it's almost, there's a fancy word in Latin, sui generis, which means of its own genre, of its own kind, right? It's one of a kind. Uh, it's been imitated, of course, now. But it's a series of 31 letters written by Screwtape, a senior devil, to his nephew, Wormwood, and he's teaching him the fine art of temptation, how to tempt his patient, the human that he's trying to get. And it is filled with humor and satire, but it's also unbelievably convicting at the same time. It is so direct. And the reason it's important, Zach, it's really written as much for believers as unbelievers. Because in Screwtape Letters, Lewis does not focus on, quote, big sins, murder, adultery, all that stuff. No, he's, he's speaking to good Christian folk, right, right, who our problem is, a continual series of little sins that accumulate, draw us away from Christ, draw us away from others, make us more judgmental, all of that stuff. So this is, if, you're, if you've ever been afraid that you might be a Pharisee, I have a great test for you, Zach. Yeah. Pick up screw tape letters, read it from cover to cover. If you can find all the sins of your friends and family, but you can't find yourself in that book, then you are a Pharisee. Amen. Because that book opens you wide even while you're laughing. It's accessible. You can read it devotionally, one or two letters yeah. per night. Uh, but remember, it's satire. So when he says the enemy, he means God. When he right. says our father below, he means right. the devil. you got to get your head in the right thing. Uh, right. Then he wrote another book, my favorite Lewis book, called The Great Divorce. has nothing to do with divorce. It is a what if. What if the people in hell could get in the bus and take the bus up to heaven. And when they get to heaven, what if the souls of the blessed, the saints, come out and try to convince them, even now, to give up their sin and pride and disobedience and embrace the love and grace of Christ? What would they do? And Lewis shows us, with only one exception, every single one of them chooses to go back. Yeah. He really helps us to understand what I call the psychology of sin, mm. what it does to us. So I would yeah. start there, then mere Christianity. Okay. A little bit harder, but still very accessible. It, it'll lay the whole groundwork. It starts with an argument for God, theism. It moves to an argument for Christ. Then it moves to a part on how to live the Christian life. And then it talks about theology. So yep. very, very. 
If you're someone who's ever struggled with the problem of pain, why is there evil and suffering? Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. Again, very accessible, speaks directly. Also, at some point, if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, you need to read the Chronicles yeah. of Narnia and dig, especially if you read them as a child, come back and read them as an adult. Yeah. I remember reading them as a child without an understanding of the Christian level. And when right. I came back, I was like, oh my gosh, how did I miss this? This is wonderful, right? Because right, I'm pretty good right. at this. Uh, what, so th- those are good places to start. Yeah, man, that's so helpful. That's so helpful. I've, I haven't read the whole thing, but I had in seminary, I had to read portions of the abolition of man. Now that that's harder, but it it's extremely, but it may even turn out to be the most important book Lewis wrote. One of the most important books of the 20th century. If you are an educator of any kind, Yes. You need to read that book. You know, that could include homeschooling mom or Sunday school, but yep. especially if you're in the school system, because Lewis shows what happens basically when you have a virtue free education, when you throw out all standards of goodness, truth and beauty, what happens to that education and ultimately what happens to that society. It's right. kind of a, a dystopia book because it shows what it will lead to. And it shows what happens when we throw out what Lewis calls the Tao. He used the word Tao to mean the universal moral ethical code that God has written in our conscience, what is often called natural law. Right. And Lewis shows us, again, it, it's difficult, but if you read it slowly, yeah. Lewis is always accept. He's not like one of these theology writers where one third of the page is notes, mostly in German. Okay, right. this is he's, I mean, he's as brilliant as any of those people, more right. brilliant, in fact, but he speaks directly. Uh, right. But that one, take your time and go through it. Uh, the great Michael Ward, who wrote Planet Narnia, recently came out with a book called After Humanity, which is a guide to the abolition of man. So that's yeah. not a bad book, it just came out. I want to talk a little bit about C.S. Lewis's experience of suffering. Oh, okay. And I, in, when I was in seminary, uh, I took a class on mm. grief and death and dying, and we had to read um, A Grief Observed and The Problem oh, of good. Pain. Oh, good. You and, did read both. And, good. And, and, and contrast them, because they're very different books. I, I, I would really encourage people to read both. Oh, yeah. yeah exactly. Because, yeah. Exactly. Problem and, of Pain, he's a young man. Now, he had no pain. Because his mother died when he was nine. And all that but that book is a more rational apologetics book. He tries to make a more rational argument. Right, right. But a grief observed is very different. Okay, right. look, you work in ministries, Adam. Right. You know that if you have someone that's, that's dealing with grief and suffering, you can explain to them philosophically why, uh, you know, pain and suffering does not disprove God. You can even prove it perfectly. Right. But that's only the philosophical answer there's also the pastoral answer how do you speak to someone who is actually in pain Amen. and the Amen. grief observed a grief observed is more like that that's something to give to someone who is in the grips of grief and suffering and help them to it's more practical in that sense yes. and you know lewis was a lifelong bachelor and then uh, there was a woman named Joy uh, who had two children, and, and her husband was unfaithful. It was a divorce and stuff. And she was in England. She had nothing. She didn't had nothing to do. But she was about to lose her passport, her visa. And so Lewis married her simply to extend his visa, his you know, British citizenship. To her. Nobody's allowed to do that anymore. Um, right. to, to do that, but never really intending to live with her, right? Because wow. he was a bachelor. But then she got cancer. Lewis's mother died of cancer when he was nine. And part of that, he realized that he really loved Joy. And he married her a second. The first one was just civil. But then he had an actual ecclesiastical wedding at her bedside. 
expecting her to die, but she recovered. She rallied three years. They had a beautiful uh, relationship, wedding, a marriage relationship. They even took a trip to Greece. One of the few times Lewis traveled out of the UK. Um, and But then the cancer came back and she died. And what Lewis did, he's a writer. How do you deal? You know, His way of dealing with things is writing. So he started writing, keeping a journal only meant for himself. Right, it was just a, a therapy, if you will. And after a while, he realized he'd filled up four notebooks full, yeah. and that's when he said, "You know what? This might help people who are grieving." So he published it under the title "A Grief Observed," but he published it anonymously, and yet it still did very well. Now, the reason, Zach, why this is one of the best books for someone who's grieving, let's just be honest: if a Christian celebrity today did this. Their wife died, they wrote it, all that. They're about to publish it. What do you think the publisher would make them do before they published it? They would make them go back to the early parts of the book and make them sound less despairing and tidy them up. Yeah. So, yeah, but that, he doesn't do that. In fact, please don't make a brief observe your first C.S. Lewis book, because when you read the first third of the book, you're like, is this the great Christian apologist? He yeah, seems it's like dark. He's it's dark. Yeah, but guess what? We all do, okay? Yeah, it's so it's dark. an extremely a white hot grief. It's an honest book where we travel with Lewis as he's not making a philosophical argument, right. but wrestling with the Lord and moving towards a stronger and deeper, the sadder but wiser man, faith at the end. So it's wonderful to show them together the philosophical arguments and and if you will, the pastoral arguments, because you know that the ultimate answer to the problem of pain, Zach, the real answer is the cross. Amen. Okay? Jesus took that full suffering upon himself, and he can fully and absolutely identify. When Jesus says, I feel your pain, he's not a phony politician. He really feels our pain fully. Yes. Yes. Amen. Yeah, it's, it, it, it rings or reminds me like, a, like the Psalms or Lamentations or Job. You know, yeah, oh, it really is. Yeah, it's raw. And it's yeah. unfiltered. Yeah, so that really leads to uh, another question I wanted to unpack with you. As an apologist, first of all, um, help someone who might not even know when we talk about apologetics, what that means, or as an apologist, like I just used the word. But then, secondly, what does it mean to tell a better story? And 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 how are you attempting to do that as you share your faith even now in, in your context? Great. Okay. Apologetics. Uh, okay. A Christian apologist is not someone who says, I'm sorry about the crusades or something <laughs> right. like that. Okay. Right. Uh, uh, we use it, but uh, apologia in Greek means a defense, like the famous apology that Socrates gave uh, before the Athenian court. He did a bad job, by the way, because they put him to death. Um, but it's also so used the better to understand it's in the bible it says be always ready to give an account of the joy that is within you but with all gentleness and humility be always ready to give an account the word is apologia and apology a, a christian apologist is someone who gives a logical rational defense of the christian faith defending it showing it that it makes sense that it's coherent right, right? and it is important you know i think you can do lewis gives a lot of rational apologetics but I think today we need even more a kind of imaginative apologetics. Uh, by the way, at Houston Baptist University, we offer a master's online on cultural apologetics. My son did it, uh, mm -hmm. and it, you could do it all online. But it's called it's called cultural apologetics 
Because in addition to reason, logic, history, science, we also look at the arts and literature and film and, and you know, try to give a more holistic understanding of it. And I'd like to start with Lewis's, it's, you know, it's often called the argument by desire. Okay, the fact that we get hungry seems to prove that we are creatures made for eating. Right. The fact that we get thirsty proves we're creatures made for drinking. Now, it doesn't prove we're going to get it. If I'm stranded in the middle of the desert, I'm going to die from lack of water, even though I'm yearning for it. Right? Right, right. But, okay, well, the fact that we yearn for things that are beyond our natural world strongly suggests that there's an origin. How, if, if, if Darwinism is true and we are merely the product of time and chance, nature is a closed system, there's nothing outside of nature, how could nature produce in us a yearning for something outside nature if there is nothing outside of nature? Lewis said it, it's all self-refuting, this naturalism and materialism and yeah. Darwinism, pure Darwinism. Yeah. So let's start with those yearnings. What do you desire? Why do you keep saying the world should be better than it is? Where did you get that idea from? Right? right. Where? What is that longing deep in the heart? You've probably heard this. It's an old, uh, it goes back to Pascal, really. Even in the 70s, they were using this. Uh, but I think it's effective today. We all have a God-shaped vacuum, right? Yeah. There is in us a, an emptiness that we want to fill, right? And sometimes we try to fill it with bad things, drugs or alcohol or promiscuity. Sometimes we try to fill it with, quote, good things like religion, patriotism, uh, mother love, the arts. All, those are good things, but nothing fills that aching hole, that God-shaped vacuum. The only thing that will fill it is God himself, our creator. That's why we keep yearning for this, yearning for transcendence is the way it says. And what the Bible teaches us, well, first of all, it makes sense of the world. Because, Zach, we live in a world that produces both a Hitler and a Mother Teresa. Right. But of course, it's crazier than that because every single one of us has a little Hitler and a little Mother Teresa inside of us. Yeah. The only thing, as far as I'm concerned, that explains that is what the Bible says. We were made in God's image. We were made good, but we sinned and disobeyed and were fallen and broken and fragmented. It's the only thing that makes sense of that. And if we forget that we're fallen, we'll keep trying to build utopia and destroy ourselves. If we forget that we are uh, that we are made in God, that we forget that we're made in God's image, then it, we're going to have what you have in like China or something, where you're just a, a cog in the wheel and you can move and manipulate people because they're just, you know, they're cannon fun. Right? Yeah. So we need both of them, right? But we also need to know, Lewis says in your Christianity, everybody, if they admit it, knows that we should live in a certain way, but we don't and we can't. And yet what religion in general says to us, keep trying harder. Well, that doesn't work, folks. Okay? We need a more radical solution. So what is the solution? And here's one more thing. You know, most kids go through a period when they say, my parents don't understand me. They don't even want to understand me. They don't care about me. Well, you know what? Your parents can never fully understand you. They can only fully understand you if we did a freaky Friday thing and they changed places with you, right? <laughs> right but right. guess what? God became man. He does understand what we suffered, he, he played it the hard way. He didn't sit out on the sidelines, the bleachers, and watch everybody else killing each other. He actually entered into the world. And that's that's what we need to know. So I like to just say, what if it's true? Yeah. What if it's true? If it's true, number one, it means there really is a God. Not just the, the, the cosmos or the God part of my brain. There really is a God who is outside of time and space, created everything, and wants a relationship with us. 
And if it's true, it means God loved us that much. And, you know, as a Baptist, we always talk about the cross, and we should. But we also need to talk about the incarnation. God loved us so much that he not only died for us, he lived for us. He became one of us and, and bore the shame and grief and embarrassment and betrayal that comes with being human. So that's the better story, right? That, that God has reached out to us and wants us to be where he is. Right. Amazing story. It is. And in my experience, when you tell people, I mean, if Darwinism is true, if natural selection is true, and we're just ultimately a cosmic accident, like how do you ultimately like sleep at night? I mean, you have to anesthetize yourself somehow or just distract yourself from that despair, the existential dilemma somehow. But it's just, it's heartbreaking, you know, or how do you, if we're just a cosmic accident, how do you make sense of um, the, the sense of righteous indignation we have at, at Putin right now? That's right. Yes. You know what I mean? Well, the, the, the strong eat the weak. That's just what natural selection says. And Putin is stronger than Ukraine, evidently, or so he thinks. And uh, and so why shouldn't he? And of course, it can be philosophically. We know that this could get much, much more complex. Right. But but just asking those kind of questions um, can, I think, lead to some really profitable conversations. Well, good. You know, the, the big deal when I was going to school was apartheid, right? And the progressives would say uh, apartheid violates the innate dignity of every human being, and therefore it should be stopped. Okay, well, let's let's understand logic, okay? What you said relies on a fact that says we all have individual value and worth. Well, where do you get that idea from? I'm right. sorry, but if all there is is Darwinism, that is simply not true. Right. If uh, we, we are a product of natural selection or survival of the fittest, then that is simply not true, right? The ruler, the stronger rules the weaker. Right. You can only make that argument and have that cause if you have a foundation to believe that we all have inherent value and worth aside from our skin color or sex or anything like that. Only, you know, the Bible, I mean, I guess you could say Judaism and Christianity, and to a certain extent, Islam, though not as, you know, Islam doesn't really have the fall in a specific right, way. It's, right. it's not really safeguarded uh, the way it is in, in Christianity. Um, and so, yeah, you, we, we, we have to have a, understand, though, that's why, even though he's a complete ass, that guy, Peter, oh, what's his name? The, the, the super animal rights guy. Um, uh, oh, oh Peter, gosh, Peter Singer? Just, yeah, Peter Singer. Yeah. At least that guy has the courage of his convictions. That's right. He understands That's right. that if Darwinism is true, that he's right. I mean, yeah. he'll basically tell you that a full-grown dog has more rights than a newborn child. Right. 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 And right. if you know, and he's right, unless you have something. And so, at least he's courageous enough to to actually show us the implications of yeah. what he says he believes. Yeah. He's not yeah. like a Richard Dawkins that throws out God, but still wants to have morality and people being nice to each other and all. What's that all about? Right. Right. So. You know, Lewis says that. Uh, he, and, his and, fancy phrase is naturalism is self-refuting. Yeah. Uh, if amen. all there is, if everything is nature, then there's no part of us that can stand outside of nature and make up laws of nature and think they're true. We're just all stuck. Well said. Well said. Well, that's a good kind of bow on this conversation um, to tie it up, Dr. Marcos, because the kind of conversation we're having right now is the kind of conversation that C.S. Lewis will help you continue if you read some of the things that we've been talking about. Would that be a good way to say it? Yeah, I think so. 
Yeah. Wait, say that again. Well, just, just the fact that um, we're talking about some grand themes of um, thinking about the Christian worldview in contrast to naturalism or Darwinism or, um, you know, things like that. If you read more of Lewis, um, he's going to do a great job as a mentor and a teacher to help you continue to think that way so that you might be equipped to have really fruitful conversations with your friends that don't know the Lord. And that you're, yeah, that you know, is, he, he will help draw you into the conversation or the dialogue and, and, and show you, again, go back to what you said about moralism. Lewis is not throwing moralisms at you. He's very moral, he's very ethical, sure. but he's trying to reach to something deeper, right? And, yep. you know, we, we make this mistake sometimes, you know, in the more evangelical, everything's about don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. You know, virtue is not just don't do this. Virtue is aligning ourselves with the goodness, truth, and beauty of God. A fancy word. Ordo amoris, rightly ordered loves. Yes. That's what it's about. It's not a dry, don't do this, don't do that. It is it is conforming. Or, well, you know that phrase, be not conformed to the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, and it's I think what, you probably need that more than anything today. Yeah, and it's what Jesus said. If you love me, start with your love for me, then you'll keep my commandments. It's true. The question and then is, what's, what's the rest of the promise? Then my father and I will come and dwell with you. Amen. Something like that. You know, it's, it's in John. It's the upper room discourse. Yes. Beautiful. But wow. I love that. The question is not um, do this, don't do that. The question is what do you love? Right. And why? Um, so, well, hey, Dr. Marcos, this hey, is great. really, this really, uh, really helpful. I think this is going to be a blessing um, to our people. And I just really appreciate you taking the time uh, to, to share what you've learned and what you've written about. And we'll... Hope to get some uh, the, some book sales for you out of it as well. Great, great. <laughs> well, the easiest way to get a hold of me, go to Amazon.com and type in Louis Marcos, M-A-R-K-O-S. Yep. They're all there. And if you go to YouTube and type in Louis Marcos, K-O-S, uh, I've got a lot of you know free lectures people can watch on my YouTube channel. Awesome. Those are free. Awesome. Hey, well, okay. great, Zach. All right. We'll be in touch. Thank you, sir. 